Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and co-producer, Calvin Pollock. How are you doing, Calvin? Doing good, Alex. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Getting in the spirit of uh, spooky season, uh, this is Reverb's uh, Halloween episode here, uh, and we are, are thrilled and chilled to be joined by Dr. Bernadette Marie Califel, uh, who is a professor uh, and department chair of critical race and ethnic studies at Gonzaga University. Dr. Califel received her PhD in communication studies from the University of North Carolina. Prior to coming to Gonzaga University, she was a faculty member at Syracuse University and the University of Denver. Her research and teaching interests are in women of color feminisms, queer and color theories, performance studies, critical rhetoric, and monstrosity and horror. Bernadette, thank you so much for being with us today. No, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so I was really tickled by how you start your 2015 book, Monstrosity, Performance, and Race in Contemporary Culture. Uh, you begin with an anecdote about watching the horror comedy show Tim and Eric's Bedtime Stories, um, and and you actually liken yourself to the little big man character that Tim Heidecker plays in a lot of the sketches, both in Bedtime Stories and the re- in the rest of the Tim and Eric broader comedy universe. Um, you go on to actually connect this to academia's role in demonizing and othering scholars and workers from marginalized and minoritized communities. So first of all, we just wanted to say uh, from Alex and I and the rest of us here at Reverb, we're huge fans of Tim and Eric. Uh, so you're, you're in good company here with your viewing habits. But um, more to the point, I thought this was an interesting way to begin the conversation was hoping that you could talk to us about how your interest in horror and monstrosity relates to your broader critique of academia's power dynamics. Yeah, for sure. And I want to step back for one second and say that I actually met Tim Heidegger and it was in when I was living in Denver, he came to Denver and did this live on cinema with Greg uh, Turkington. And it was, it was in a very small theater there weren't that many people there and the one thing i can say is that the man stays in character and he was decker and in that character yes and so he's walking around colfax avenue wearing a leather jacket when it is like a hundred degrees and wearing um like a hat that is obviously you know a wool hat so i don't know how he did it but I, I was actually really scared to ask to ask a question because he's a very intimidating figure. Um, but afterwards, he came out in the crowd and I talked to him and I told him that, you know, he had inspired <laughs> this book, part of this book. And he was really interested in it. And he asked me the name of the book and and such. Um, and the thing is, he's he looks like this little guy. But he's like six, six, one, six, two, I think. So he's a he's a big man. Um, wow. I guess just compared to Eric, he's a little exactly. man. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There's the relational character dynamics there at play. Yeah. But Tim and Eric's bedtime stories, um, actually, that that stuck with me a lot. Um, and Tim and Eric, and <laughs> their comedy in general stuck with me a lot um, because I think they are very astute in their critiques about whiteness, about uh, masculinity, about class. Um, <laughs> and I felt very much my 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 partner was like, you know, you're like Brenner, 
the character in Hole. How you doing? Hello there. I'm Brenner. Brenner. Hey, I'm Dennis Murphy. Just moved in. Murph. Just Dennis is fine. All right, well, I'm going to call you Murph. Welcome to the sack. Thanks so much. What are you, some kind of computer nerd? The one who is the neighbor who is bullying the Eric Warheim character. He's the little guy compared to the 666 or 67 um, Eric Warheim's character. Um, and I felt like that. And it wasn't necessarily because I was a bully, but I felt like this person who kept trying to get some sense of control in the situation that was beyond his control. Right. And so I started the book that way because I felt that that's kind of how we think about academia and how people from historically marginalized groups are often um, characterized both as this, this, as if they're being, you know, this bully figure, but in fact, a lot of times it is about trying to get a sense of control, a sense of agency. And that's not to excuse Brenner's behavior because he's atrocious in that, in that um, whole episode, but I just, there was something about that character that really spoke to me and Tim and Eric in general and that series, I highly recommend for anybody who's interested in horror or monstrosity, Tim and Eric's Bedtime Stories is one of the best series that looks at the horror of everyday life. And so that is, I wanna put that plug out there for that show. But um, it got me thinking a lot about academia and how it, the horrors of everyday life in academia. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, something that something that we and many listeners of our show are are no doubt familiar with, um, and it it makes me feel great, honestly, to hear a critical scholar of media talk about uh, Tim and Eric in this way because that's it's something that ever since I was an undergraduate and you know sort of grew up in my college years watching Tim and Eric, something that you know I felt like okay this deserves more intellectual uh, credit than than people give it as this you know sort of like stoner comedy on Adult Swim, um, so. So it's so it's very validating to hear you to hear you uh, see the value in that as well. And I think I, I mean I think what you're talking about here really gets uh, provocatively at what your concept of monstrosity really is running through your work. Uh, but just to stay on academia for a moment, um, you did uh, you you know you open your uh, your book uh, or at least your first chapter of your book uh, with an adaptation of an autoethnographic article that you wrote uh, in 2012, uh, "Monstrous Femininity: Constructions of Women of Color." in the academy. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about how those experiences shaped the article and the chapter that you wrote uh, and how you drew on your theoretical work on monstrosity to analyze those experiences? Yeah, I will say that that piece was the piece that made me decide, besides Tim and Eric, obviously, that made me decide to write the book um, because I remember just, it was, I would just graduated from um, my PhD program and I was put in a position where I'm, you know, brand new assistant professor and I have a colleague making this comment about, well, if Bernadette, and this isn't a meeting about diversity, <laughs> if Bernadette wants to uh, get naked in a cage and on the quad and call it research, let's, let's let that count. And I felt like that was the most profound, well, it was profoundly disturbing, but it also the most profound um, example of how people of color are on display literally all the time. And I had around that same time, I'd read this article um, about, I think it was around the same time, everything coalesces. So it's kind of hard to remember what happened when, and that, but there was the Kanye West monster video 
and I read an article by a woman, um, Latoya Peterson, and she talked about the werewolf woman in the video and being on display and all of that, and the women of color being on display and being monstrous. And so it all came together for me. So I said, okay, I'm going to write this, this article and see if this works. Now, most of the work on monstrosity has been very much textual analysis. So I was really nervous and, you know, who are they going to send this to is first things that I thought. And I was really, really, I have a feeling I know who they sent it to, who I believe they sent it to, which I believe was a really prominent scholar in English and werewolf studies. So I was like, yes, thank you for taking a chance on, on this piece. Um, but you know, so there was a lot of hesitation because of the type of writing that it was, as well as somebody, would somebody accept the fact that I wanted to say, you've made me into a monster, but you know what, I'm going to run with it and say that it's a really empowering thing for me to embrace that monstrosity. And so that's kind of um, how that all came about and how it made me, I was, I'll tell you what, you know, anytime you publish an article, there's fear when it comes out. This is probably the one that I've had the, a lot of hesitation when it came out and I felt that there may be repercussions from it. Um, but I've actually gotten a lot of positive feedback about it. Um, and so that's, that's been great and affirming in a lot of ways. Yeah, for our part, I think it's. I, I thought it was incredibly brave that you were so candid about all of those experiences. So, uh, and I know from talking to a lot of other people that they appreciated your your disclosures in that as well. Yeah, so I think maybe take us to the theoretical a little bit, if you could. Like, where do you position this idea of monstrosity in the broader theoretical traditions that you're drawing from? Well, I'll say I started really with going to Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's work on monstrosity and his his theses around monstrosity. Um, and so that started as a point from in, I believe he is in like um, an English department. That started for me the conversation on monstrosity. And then I said, well, can you talk about monstrosity without talking about horror? And that's when I went to my old, old colleague, Kendall Phillips work on horror. And another scholar whose work has been really central for me has been Marina Lavina and her work on monstrosity. So bringing together those three, those three veins, along with thinking about a critical communication studies lens, one of the things I'm always interested in is how projects of, you know, going back to this whole critique of freedom and domination, like, I want to look at projects that are dominating, but I also want to look at projects that are like, you know, projects of freedom and how we need to critique those as well, right? And so it seemed like these monstrosity was a construct that could seem as if it was very oppressive, but it is actually a project that could be a project of freedom for a lot of historically marginalized folks. And so that's where a lot of the theoretical underpinning came from, along with my commitments to, I mean, everything that I do is based in a feminist lens. And so a commitment to kind of an intersectional feminist approach to, to this, because I think Cohen does a good job of trying to get at that, but he doesn't implicitly name feminists a feminist perspective or intersectional perspective, even though he does that in his uh, monster theses. And so Cohen, Lavina, um, Phillips, and it's, I will say that Marina Lavina and Kendall Phillips were the ones that were really getting this conversation started before anyone was really having it. So theoretically, they were the ones that I was 
being drawn to, um, along with, you know, the other part of it, I'll say, going back to the feminist section is, um, I've always been interested in, in the, the figure of the werewolf, which I talk about in that piece, The Monstrous Femininity, and Gloria Anzaldúa, which a kind of feminist scholar, is all about shape-shifting. And so for me, thinking about shape-shifting as connected to um, a cultural narrative of needing to be able to shape shift in order to survive in a, a white supremacist patriarchal society was a big part of that. So that's where the theoretical underpinnings came from for for those for those for that chapter at least, and I think for general for my approach to monstrosity. Thank you very much. That is that is super informative, and we really appreciate that, especially the way that you're kind of contextualizing monstrosity uh, as you know something that is created, right? Socially uh, constructed uh, as a you know as a uh, response to uh, oppressive systems and a sort of label that oppressive systems uh, can place on marginalized and minoritized people. Um, so as long as you mentioned werewolves, and we can start talking about some examples here, I think that would be really helpful. Um, Tell us a little bit about your work on uh, Kanye West, for example. Uh, you have a chapter in your book dedicated to Kanye West, um, which, of course, at the time, you know, this was written in 2015. So I obviously we're not going to hold you to presentist standards uh, with, you know, what. But but we would be interested in hearing about your thoughts generally on, you know, the trajectory of Kanye West, you know, all the way from his beginnings to uh, to your analysis of uh, of Monster, uh, as well as uh, any thoughts that you might have on his contemporary turn as well. Yes. So I will say, again, all this started to line up for me because I was in this, uh, my first job, and all this was happening to me. And Kanye West came to the university and performed at the university. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get like, like third row seats. And it was, it was incredible. And so I got this poster of Kanye West, and I hung it in my office. And um, it became very much like this symbol of my kind of uh, his song Spaceship and just needing to get a new job um, was very much my kind of his his image was like propelling me towards some kind of future that I was hopeful about. But also his image is very pessimistic because I, you know, I would you know, it was the same time where he said George Bush doesn't care about black people. I had little sticky notes that said like, oh, the, ch the chancellor doesn't care about XXX, whatever, you know, so I was really pessimistic at this time as well. But um, Kanye West, I just loved Kanye West immediately when College Dropout came out, um, because it resonated so much with the kind of um, feeling I was having after finishing my PhD. Um, and one of the things that struck me that really wanted, made me want to write about Kanye West was the incident with Taylor Swift in which he infamously went on the stage at the VMAs. Yo, Taylor, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. So that along with his, his comments, which shocked um, Mike Myers into just like this utter speechlessness about George Bush doesn't care about black people, made me really think about Kanye West and how he'd been constructed as a monster in the public. And one of the things that people don't realize is that, and I show these to my students in my classes, is that he was supposed to go on tour with Lady Gaga for a tour called Fame Kills. And they'd actually done shots of 
great photographs for this. One of the photographs was him kind of like a creature from the Black Lagoon figure holding up a naked Lady Gaga and her whiteness is really, really present. And he's like got this, he's got these like um, really tattered clothes. He's got reptilian eyes. And so I was like, wow, literally they've made him a monster. And the media has also made him a figurative monster, right? And so I became interested in thinking about how he was going to use that monstrosity um, to either, you know, is he going to go with this? Is he going to challenge it? What's going to happen here? And when he released Monster, I was just like, wow, he's taking it dead on. Um, and that album, you know, was so powerful. Um, and when he he got he got all those folks to rap on monster i was like wow okay this is an example of how you know historically african-american men have been seen as monstrous and how he's actually taking that trope especially in light of the taylor swift incident in which he was seen as monstrous to her kind of like you know traditional image of the of the innocent white woman the pithy white woman who needs to be saved um and how he was really embracing it you know, and so that to me was just incredible. And then you get somebody like Nicki Minaj, who was just starting to really make a make an impact on there. And her verse by far was the best one on the the track. And um, when you think about women of color, they have been constructed historically as sexually available, as monster sexuality as some kind of exotic otherness. Um, so for her to embrace those tropes and to, to kind of even um, sexualize, she's like literally riding herself, like it was really powerful, right? And so that was one of the things that I took away from this was that monstrosity for people of color, like, are we going to let other people speak about our monstrosity, speak and call us monsters, or are we going to allow ourselves to reclaim that monstrosity, right? Um, and so I think in some ways too, Kanye West's monstrosity can, you know, um, was a way for him to also critique what I, what I talk about in the chapter a little bit with the politics of respectability. And that's one of the things that he does through monstrosity. And so that's why I think it's so powerful as a tool. You know, I can't talk about Kanye Kardashian too much. Um, I'll say that I think if anything, it upped his monstrosity, but not in the, in the most positive way. Not in the most then. transgressive way, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It's far from transgressive. In fact, if anything, that was the downhill slide for me. <laughs> and then the Trump um, and the presidential campaign, certainly, um, it is, is just was just too much. Um, so I can't speak to Kanye now. Um, but I think that the, he had a lot of transgressive possibility during that time period of yeah. when he first came out until Monster. So shifting gears back to movies a little bit, um, you, you recently wrote a really fascinating chapter on Jordan Peele's Get Out, the 2017 film. And um, 
I guess just generally, can you explain to our listeners how you got interested in writing about this film? Like, what were some of the prevailing ways of reading Get Out, even from a critical anti-racist perspective? And how does your reading differ from how people have thought about this movie so far? Yeah, I think one of the things that a lot of things that people say, obviously, is that the film is a product of Black Lives Matter in the moment, which I think, you know, is great. Um, and a lot of the prevailing readings I've seen have been about, um, there's been some interesting work around zombification and going back to the work on um, voodoo, right? And thinking about that, there's also been um, a lot of work on necropolitics and how the movie really actually does go to that kind of politics in a very blatant way. Um, thinking about the slave, like the slave, the scene hearkening back to the slave auction. Um, so a lot of work on black masculinity and, or even if it's not about black masculinity, it's using blackness to stand in for black masculinity, right? So blackness gets equated with masculinity regardless of what's happening, right? So we see the main focus is on the character of Chris, which is pretty, pretty rightful, you know, to do so. Um, he is the main character. Um, and thinking about, there's also what I'm really interested in, and I haven't seen as much with the film, in addition to um, these, these kind of critiques that we've already seen, is the critique of the woke white girl character. I think that would be a really fascinating paper for somebody to write. Um, but you know, these 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 uh, essays that I've seen have done a lot of great work on on necropolitics, on black masculinity, um, the death drive, that kind of thing. But when I was watching the film, I was really interested in the character of Georgina, who is the woman who works for the family. And we come to find out she is housing the um, the brain of grandma. And one of the reasons why I was interested in is because my work tends to go from a, a queer perspective. And so when one of the best scenes for me in that film is when we see Chris go through Rose's closet and finds pictures of all the people that she has, you know, brought in and, and ha all the victims she's brought in and we see Georgina and that's the shock value. Right. But what does Chris do immediately afterwards? He puts her back in the closet. So I was like, wow, like how much more literal can you be in terms of this character? And, you know, the thing about the character that I found fascinating was that she is always there to protect white, uh, whiteness, right? So up until the end, when we, we hope that she's going to break out, we hope that she's going to get out of the sunken place when he rescues her at the end of the film. And what does she do? She said, you, you know, you messed up my house, you know, and she attacks him. So I was like, okay, how can we make sense of this character along with the, the police woman who um, got some airtime, but I didn't get to write about as much. And one of the things that I found fascinating from a feminist perspective is throughout the film, Chris draws on his bodily knowledges, like there's something wrong here. Like, I'm just telling you, like, I can feel it. Um, and what I term, what Cher Miraga and Gloria Anzaldúa would term the theory of the flesh, right? That there are lived, that the, there are certain body knowledges that um, especially women of color have that they theorize through the body because of histories of oppression. And that's how we've been able to survive throughout the years. 
And so one of the things I found fascinating was that Chris is using this, this kind of knowledge to get through. And Georgina just is a symbol of white, of upholding white supremacy. And so I was like, okay, we got to talk about the fact that Get Out is more than just a film about black masculinity. It's a film about queerness, what, what E. Patrick Johnson calls queerness, which is black queer um, Southern, I know they're not in the South, but which is black queer um, Southern identity. And that's how I got to thinking about Georgina was what she could represent. And what would it mean if we took Georgina out of the closet? Like, what are the other possibilities there in reading the film? If we took Georgina out of the closet and we moved from this idea of, you know, black masculinity um, going forward in this critique at the expense of black femininity and queerness. So that's kind of my reading of the film. And so I was, you know, I don't know how, how, how I, if, if I did any justice to it, but I think it could be really interesting to take more of an Afro-feminist, Afro-futurist um, feminist approach to it and think about what that character, character tells us and what she can tell us that we don't get just from the character of Chris, right? So, because in horror, Kenitra Brooks has written about how uh, black women are often these expendable characters that are used to, to really drive the narrative of other characters. And that's certainly the case that we see with Georgina. And so I kind of really want to give a shout out to Kenitra Brooks and her work because that was the inspiration in a lot of cases, as well as the character, as well as the work of Kara Keeling, who really focuses on the on the uh, black femme character. Because also she's a femme. And when we think about queer representations, we often see butch or stud representations rather than femme characters. So those were some of the thoughts behind the work I was doing um, in that essay. I really appreciate that. Um, and yeah, that that article that you wrote on Get Out or the chapter that you wrote on Get Out was was particularly fascinating. I mean, I, I think at least for me and probably for a lot of other people that viewed the film, that moment where, you know, Chris is going through the photos and he sees a picture of uh, of his you know girlfriend with another woman. It, it's this moment of revelation where we've been, you know, a lot of people that have been viewing the film have read her as straight the entire uh, Rose, right, uh, have read her as straight for the entire film. Um, and then there's this 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 moment of potential for digging into a little bit more about about queerness, about the racialized aspect of that relationship. But yeah, no, I, I did find it uh, your analysis of particularly that scene where you know Chris says to uh, to Georgina, "All I know is sometimes if there's too many white people, I get nervous," you know. And we see you know kind of the what what becomes a mark of distinction for you know uh, the. Uh, characters uh, emerging from the sunken place. They have a tear going down their face. And then, but then of course, you know, the mother character takes over there and says, you know, starts laughing kind of maniacally and saying, that's not been my experience at all. Right. She's like, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I do something. That's not my experience. Not at all. The Armitages are so good to us. They treat us like family. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and 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 that's like the gif that gets circulated the most online from Get Out, which I think is really interesting. Given that I think you're right that Georgina is kind of a minor character and is there's a lot of potential to explain. Like, there could be a whole season of a TV show just about Georgina, Georgina's life, you know. Um, but she's kind of shunted a little bit to the background of the film, and yet I think that that no 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 image circulated for a reason right people people did see something in the georgina character definitely Definitely. absolutely um but we also wanted to focus not just on the ways that monstrosity is used um you know as a sort of oppressive label uh that's you know people in power put on uh, minoritized people but also the ways that monstrosity you know you kind of alluded to this earlier can be used uh as a force a resistive force against systems of domination and oppression uh to that end uh you also co-authored uh an article in 2017 with uh, shadi abdi uh analyzing uh the ways that the film uh, a girl walks home alone at night creates this extremely transgressive figure of a feminist iranian vampire this was so interesting i haven't read i haven't seen the film but this your analysis was really provocative uh talking about this you know feminist vampire who protects the women of her city from the violence of patriarchy uh broadly so can you tell us a little bit about what you uncovered in this analysis and what it tells us about the resistive potential of monstrosity and its representations in culture yeah, so Shadi Abdi was one of my graduate students at the University of Denver, and we, she is um, Iranian-American, and she was very interested in this film, and she said, we should go and see this film. So we went to go see the film, and it was the scariest vampire figure I'd ever seen in, like, I mean, really scary. And one of the things that was fascinating about the film was reading the backstory, first of all, and it is by um, Anna Lily Amipour, who is, she was born, I believe, in London, um, but then spent the most of her life in California. She grew up in California, and she worked as an extra on a set, and she put on um, a chador, which is the traditional uh, garb that the woman, the women wear in Iran. And she said when she put it on, she felt like a bat. And she said vampire bat. And so that became a way for her to start thinking about what are the transgressive possibilities of of a vampire figure. And especially when we think about women who choose to veil in the Western media, they're often seen as um, as not transgressive. They're seen as um, not having their own agency is somehow this is being forced onto them, right? When a lot of these women see the veil as a possibility um, and an agentic thing. And so that became the start to really think about the film and the, the analysis of the film we, we, we did was based on two things, which was based on the first, the, the feminist vampire figure um, and this idea of a queer utopia. And so one of the things the monstrous feminist came out was really cool because i mean we're watching the film and all she is doing is literally killing men who who create or reinforce patriarchy in the city so the first of them being um the drug dealer who is i mean if you haven't seen this film seeing the drug dealer itself then the killing of the drug dealer himself is worth it um because he is a very like he is one of the most, he's, he's a funny kid. He's a ridiculously funny character of hegemonic masculinity is what I'll say. 
Um, and that scene with him is great. Um, so she kills the drug dealer. She um, warns a little boy about not becoming like an evil patriarch. And so we were really interested in what it would mean if this woman who is very small, she looks unassuming um, and and she kills a, a man who was um, forcing another woman to take drugs, right? So we were like, well, what does it mean if this woman who's small and unassuming, who doesn't speak and literally has no name other than being referred to as the girl, um, is a feminist heroine, right? And so that was part of our analysis. And the fact that she's wearing the chador, like how does that challenge, you know, kind of traditionally like imperial images of, of um, Muslim and um, women from the Middle East and North Africa who choose to wear that, right? So that was the first part of our analysis. But the second part of it was one of the things about Bad City was that everybody was very, seemed very lonely and they seemed that they were missing something. And the work of Jose Munoz, who is probably one of the most um, influential on in my own work, his work on queer utopias really came forward for us in, in analyzing the film. And everything, everybody is longing for something else in the film. And everyone else is longing not only for something else, but they're longing for kind of a relational aspect. And what we see in the film is that the girl has these relational aspects with different characters. We see it with the character of Arash, who is her love interest. We see it with the character of Ati, who is the prostitute. And we see it with the character of the trans woman in the film, who harkens as well towards kind of some of the policies around um, around sexuality and gender in Iran, right? And so our analysis of the film was think was really thinking about how the film is trying to gesture towards something else, something positive, something um, hopeful. And one of the things, one of my colleagues had taught the article and she said, you know, a lot of times the critique is always just like the critique and you're left with something kind of like a bad taste in your mouth. But one of the things is this is a film that is actually doing something that goes to me beyond just um, leaving a bad taste in our mouth, but leaving us with a sense of hope and possibility, right? That we can redeem these images that have been used against, against us, but also there's something important in the relational and the queer, the queer utopias. Like where are the queer utopias that we can all look for in our own worlds, right? Where are those possibilities, right? And one of the things that Jose Munoz says is that we're not yet queer. Well, this film is, is all about that. We're not yet queer, we're not yet there, but we can hope to be there. So how can we gesture toward that hope in this film is one of the things that we were thinking about when we wrote about the film. That's fascinating. I mean, I see a lot of commonality between that analysis and the analysis of the character of Georgina and the kind of, I mean, that Georgina in Get Out represents this unrealized possibility um, it's sort of expanded out in a girl walks home alone at night uh, into a, a moral encompassing possibility. And those kinds of stories are so important and rare in horror, right? I think especially in contemporary horror, which is just so like unendingly dark and bleak. Um, so, so seeing utopian visions in horror, you know, is really important. Um, I think our, our last sort of topic that we wanted to cover with you unfortunately is a, a move back a move back to the bleak <laughs> but um i'm sure you'll leave us with some some uh some trajectories to follow for hope uh within this so 
you've you've been invited to give a number of talks on horror monstrosity and cultural anxieties during the Trump era specifically. And I think um, Alex and I talk about this kind of thing a lot, both, uh, you know, the monsters that Trumpist and other kind of like dominant uh, dark pseudo fascist uh, rhetorics create, you know, the others that are created in these rhetorics. Uh, But also, I mean, there is a monstrosity and a grotesqueness to the leaders of these political movements themselves, like certainly including Trump. I mean, Trump is a monster. He's grotesque. He's, you know, his public performance is often uh, either inadvertently or at times, you know, advertently grotesque and scary and, and disgusting. And so I guess, to to put this in terms of a question, how like what has been motivating um, your work on this, both in terms of cultural anxieties in the Trump era and how you see monstrosity in this time, both as, you know, in terms of dominant characterizations of marginalized people, the kind of victims of this rhetoric, but also do you see the monstrous you know, in these figures kind of in, in the way that I was just sort of laying out. Yeah. What's been really fascinating to me and actually got me to think about some of this was the way that the children had been detained in the, these camps. Right. And um, one of my former grad students, Stephanie Farhada had written, and she kind of added me on there a piece about the curse of La Llorona. And that being a film that is really trying to get at um, white and white and and Mexican motherhood as a way to think about um, how certain aspects of uh, Mexican motherhood are seen as bad when Mexican women do them, but when white women do them, they're seen as good. And then I started to think about what the curse of La Llorona meant in the Trump era particularly when, you know, so the story of La Llorona to give you all, those of you who don't know, um, is that there's a woman who, narratives shift, but basically there was a woman who, I'll say the popular version I know, is that she had been married to this man and he, or excuse me, she was trying to get married to this man and he wanted to marry her, but she had children and he didn't want the children. So she took her children to the river and drowned them and when she died, she went to her afterlife and her God figure told her she couldn't enter unless she found her children. So she goes around to rivers and will try and take you and drown you and claim you as her children. So if you go out at night and you see this beautiful woman in white crying, don't go up to her because she will kill you. And, and this is this is a bedtime story I was told as a child growing up in Phoenix. Um, but basically, one of the things that started to convert to convert or converse at this time of the film was that there started to also be a lot of memes and a lot of um, things coming out that that really likened Trump to Pennywise the clown. So, South Park Splatty Tomato episode had Mr. Garrison, who comes to represent Trump, come back to town and be this Pennywise figure, right? There was also um, uh, Stephen King said, we've elected President Pennywise. 
And so there were people who were making these 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 connections, as well as there was also images of Trump as the Joker, the Heath Ledger Joker, right? And so I started to think about this and how and these two figures of La Llorona and the figure of Trump as as this child killer or child, you know, taking children away, um, kidnapper converse to tell us about what was happening in this moment around mass detentions of children at the border. Um, and then the other thing that stood out, there were two other things. So Melania, there was a great piece in The Onion that said, um, uh, La Llorona spotted or scaring children at um, detention, Texas Detention Center. And it was a picture of Melania Trump when she went there and she was wearing that, I don't care, I really don't care, do you jacket. So it was like all this converging together to have this meaning around um, Trump and the cultural, cultural, the real cultural anxieties that children were dying at the border and being detained. So for me, the monster taking away kind of what is the monster of the Trump presidency, it's not just Trump himself as a dictator, um, but also the fact that, you know, these, these bodies that he's, he's, he's made dangerous continue to be expendable, right? And so the story of La Llorona for me is interesting because she's taking your kids, but if you put it really, if you really look at it and you put it in the Trump era, the question is, is she really the one taking the kids, right? Or is it this larger kind of cultural narrative about, um, you know, what Trump is doing? And that film was set in the 1970s. And there's been a lot of nostalgic nostalgia in, in um, horror. Like one of my favorite films, The Lords of Salem, had this 70s aesthetic too. And so the 1970s, we think about Nixon. We think about, um, you know, the comparison there with Trump and Nixon. And so I was thinking, wow, okay, what, you know, how can we, how can we think about what this nostalgia is doing. So how can we go back to 1970s, 1980s, you know, make America great again, Reagan. And it just was calling back a lot of those kinds of things. And so for me, those that film, as well as these kind of memes and these kind of images of Trump as Pennywise and the Joker were one way for us to see how horror is playing out to make sense of um, what is going on in this cultural moment of the Trump, not just the Trump presidency, but the post-Trump presidency, which I think we'll see a lot of that continued um, in the horror that's going to be coming out, how we're going to continue to try and reckon with it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I haven't had a chance to really dig into, but I'm curious to see is the analysis that Kendall Phillips does of the Purge films, right, and how the Purge films reckon with the Trump presidency as well. Um, or the post era of the Trump presidency. And so for me, that is where I see a lot of uh, horror cinema going in the 21st century. And, you know, we see a lot of, we see a lot of finally, a lot of minoritized horror, which I think is really great. So one of the best, and I'm going to give a shout out to one of the best small group horror um, companies is uh, Lucha Gore Horror coming out of Vancouver. They have a film on Hulu, if um, Culture Shock. Um, there's also a film called El Gigante, um, which is about a wrestler at the border who kills people at the border in the ring and cannibalizes them, and so sells the food to tourists. So, uh, like, this is the kind of this is the state of horror that we're we're living in, 
And one of the things that the company did after they made this film was they sold T-shirts that said El Gigante is going to go fight Trump next. So like this is the moment like the, this cannibalization is what I think is really interesting, right? How we're cannibalizing ourselves in this moment um, and how some of these minoritarian um, uh, directors and filmmakers are trying to get at some of that. I mean, we saw that with us, right? Jordan Peele, you know, very much a class as, as, as class analysis, um, but also literally the characters do kind of, you know, they're attack they're attacking their own selves and i do want to point out that there is a reference to chud you know chud is chud let's, let's talk about chud for a second they have that film yes. they have that film um the videotape of chud i just re-watched chud the other day um and you know that again was about humanoid underground cannibalistic dwellers right so again here's another reverberation of that so yeah so cannibalizing it's uh of our of our society on multiple levels um as well as the kind of horror of detention a horror of you know the missing child or the killed child those are the kinds of things that i see as being prominent in this this moment um and if you haven't seen chud i'm not gonna say it's the greatest film in the world but it's a good film that helps i think under help helps contextualize current films like us I really appreciate the shout out to Chud. It's it, it is I, I watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. Particularly, I think it was actually after watching us because, like you, I had noted that there was a VHS tape right in the very one of the very first shots where you know it's zooming in on that you know the old PSA you know the hands around the world hands together around the world or I can't remember what it's called <laughs> but um, so it was you know kind of co-contextualizing the time period right that the that it was supposed to be shot in but also yeah of course giving us this sort of you know not not to give any spoilers about us but you know the eventual revelation that you know there you know that there exists this underground society of people that literally are you know do not to be seen right to who are literally just existing as parallels of uh, of the people who get the freedom of living in the in the overworld um and yeah i mean i guess turning back to that notion of rendering monstrosity as a hopeful or potentially resistive force i i was actually curious do you do you read the ending of us as as being hopeful? Is that something that's where we can take some hope away from the way that you know there is the emergence and then all of a sudden we actually have uh, all of the the tethered uh, holding hands around the world? Uh, did you see that as a hopeful moment? I just thought it was scary as hell. <laughs> Not necessarily hopeful, scary as hell. The highlight of that film for me was Tim Heidecker. Um, yes and the death scene. bring us back to where we started exactly the death scene not to spoil it for too too much but uh the beach boys yes. and tim reidegger oh my gosh incredible <laughs> we've come all the way full circle well bernadette Calafell, we want to thank you so much for joining us here on reverb today it's been an absolute pleasure getting us into uh into the spirit of the season uh as well as just discussing some of your your incredible work uh on uh on monstrosity your contributions to critical communication studies uh it's really an honor to have you here and thanks for all the great film wrecks no just thank you both for having me and i love the conversation today so again tim heidegger if you're listening we love you <laughs> we love you tim we, we love you tim yep we're we all will. tim heads <laughs> down with greg <laughs>
And from all of us here at Reverb, thank you very much for listening. We will talk to you next time. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.